This is part one of three. So next week I'll put part two of three. So you'll know. This is not going to be a long one like it was previously. Uh, would you open your Bibles, please? Oh, by the way, good morning. I had someone ask me that, so I won't tell you what it was, but she plays the organ. So good morning. Good morning, Marty. It's not that I'm trying to be cold and rude. I just getting focused, and but that's a weakness I've always had. Okay, if you would turn your Bibles to First John, and I'm going to read uh, from chapter three, verses four through ten. And these are the verses we'll be in, God willing, for the next uh, three weeks, including today. First John three four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. Um, It is given to us uh, for our good. We pray, God, this morning that you will probe us, you will help us, Lord, as we consider the strong truths of this passage. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful uh, to your word this morning. And we pray, Father, that it will do each one of us here good today. And may you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage falls into a larger context, which is very important, I think, to to remind you of. And I'll just read the verses from the fifth chapter, where the Apostle John tells us the general reason why God led him to write this letter. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's the overall reason why I wrote that. But this verse might have already shaken somebody here. The purpose of this passage is not to is not uh, to make people who are really believers start doubting their salvation. It's not the point of it at all. What it is in part to do is it is to deal with people who imagine they're saved but don't have a strong basis for that at all. It's to shake it's to shake that person up. You may be one of those people here today. You may be a person who doesn't have a lot of confidence. You don't have assurance of your salvation, and, and nobody does all the time. It's something that, as the, as the ancient confessions tell us, they fluctu- it fluctuates. What, sometimes we don't feel like we're saved. We think, how can I be saved and be doing this or thinking this? 
But the Apostle John wants us to know for sure that we're saved. And if we're not saved, he wants us to know that too, so that we can do something about it before it's too late. That's why the title here is The Proof is in the Practice, because this particular passage is zeroing in on behavior, on conduct, on evidence. Um, Why did Jesus Christ come into this world? Well, the quick answer is right there in verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And if you look at uh, verse 8 again, he came to destroy the works of the devil. It's another way of saying that. In other words, Jesus came into this world to save a people and to also sanctify a people, even in this world, and obviously to destroy Satan's works. So Jesus came to deliver, to rescue, to save from sin. We just read it, Romans 8.1. Uh, we just read that together. But he came to deliver us from the penalty of sin and from the practice of sin, which he calls lawlessness here. And of course, the penalty, the ultimate penalty of sin is death which is, includes the whole, the whole realm of death, including hell, eternal hell. Um, life is a very serious thing. There's two types of people that imagine they're right with God when they're not right with God. This whole letter deals with both of those people. Some people, they believe the right things. They're orthodox in their theology. They confess that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They, they confess it. They, they, they believe it's true. But in works, they deny him. They deny that very profession of faith, just as Paul says to Titus, that there are people who deny their faith. They deny their profession by how they live. Earlier in this epistle, in chapter 2, listen to this. These are strong words. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's one kind of person that's, that's out there. He thinks he's saved, believes the right things, but the life doesn't show it at all. On the other hand, there are some people who are very moral. Um, you meet them and... You, you've heard about them. You've heard they've got a really good reputation. Uh, they have a reputation for being honest, for being upright, for being trustworthy, for being kind, for being benevolent. You know professing unbelievers who are like that, don't you? There are people, there are certain garages. You would go to that garage because even though the, the person there who's the mechanic, he may be unsaved, but he's honest. On the other hand, it's not always that way with people who profess Christ. But anyway, not to get off the track here, um, but you begin to probe this person. You meet this person and maybe some new person has come to work or you've just gone to a new place to work and you meet this person. They're really kind. They're, they're loving and all of that. And then you begin to say, well, I want to find out this person seems to be a Christian. But as you probe them, you find that they really have an aversion to Christ and the gospel. They hate him. They don't want to hear about it. I'm sure you've had that happen. You begin to talk. You begin to think this person, I don't think, has any kind of spiritual background. You begin to tell them about Christ and they don't want to hear it. And it's almost like you've taken the mask off. But their conduct oftentimes is unassailable. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. Uh, When I was a kid growing up, my father was a logger. 
And he used to come on Friday nights when he'd gotten checks from the mill that paid him for the wood that was hauled there. He would he would cash those checks so that he could pay his crew. He would cash them at the local general store in Hudson. Well, he came home one night. Uh, having, it was winter time, and the crew was with him, mainly brothers and his brothers and uh, cousins. But he came home and. My mother would would uh, count the money out for what they had earned, and all of a sudden they realized they were I think it was like four hundred dollars short from the check that he had cashed, and so they went out. He thought, well, maybe I dropped it. So they went out. I remember that night they went out and they were going through the snow trying to find it and couldn't find it. So he went back over to the store, and someone said, I remember that so and so was standing there as he counted the money out to you. And so they called him up and had him come down, and he had such a reputation that whatever he was going to say, they were going to follow it. And he said, yeah, he was, whatever the amount was, I don't remember now, it was short, you, you owe him that money. And so the, the storekeeper was a good friend of my father's, there was no question he gave him the money. But you know what, this man belonged to a cult, the man that they trusted. He belonged to one of the well-known cults. So people can be very moral and upright and still not be saved. Now, it seems pretty obvious uh, in these verses, these seven verses that I just read, that the Apostle John is dealing with an old issue here. He's dealing with the issue that's still plaguing the church today, namely that you can be saved and do anything you want to do. You can live any way you want to live. In other words, you can live unrepentantly, uh, habitually in sinful practices, Do you understand why I said the word habitually, unrepentantly? Because every one of us here have sinned today. We all sin. We sin a lot. But the difference is is that the genuine Christian keeps confessing, keeps repenting, keeps saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I believe. Help my unbelief. He keeps turning from sin. But there's that person out there who claims to be a Christian. To him, sin is neither here nor there. It's irrelevant. Um, After all, he says, By grace, you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. Um, It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. They'll tell you that. They'll throw that in your face. They'll say you're being legalistic. You're making me think that salvation is by works. I'm not saying that at all. Or they'll say Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, which we all say to that amen. That's true. But those very epistles, and they're not the only ones, they say that there's got to be evidence to, for it to be real. There must be evidence. Um, the, the scriptures clearly teach us that a person must have a right confession. In other words, you can't say something like, well, I don't believe that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for me. I don't believe that. It was a good example, perhaps, but... Uh, no, I, I've got to earn. You, you can't have a wrong idea of what salvation is, but you also can't say have the right idea of what Jesus did on the cross and deny it by how you live. Uh, Jesus came to save and to sanctify lost human beings. And here John is writing about the essential character of the children of God, what they should be like. Paul says in First Thessalonians, this is the will of God. Your holiness. Or again, Titus 3.14 tells us that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for our sins to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And people like to quote the Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and they don't quote the 10th verse that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It makes me think of the passage where Jesus said this. He said in Matthew 12, 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. In other words, Jesus is saying there, you'll be who you are. You'll be who you are. A dog will be a dog. A dog cannot be a seal. A dog cannot be a cat. I'm sure dogs are thankful for that. A bear will be a bear. Crows will be crows. And unsaved, unregenerate people will be just that. They'll show it either in their doctrine or they'll show it in their behavior or both. And saved people, regenerate people, will, on an increasing scale, live like regenerate, saved people. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, to walk according to the flesh... It's to live the way the world lives. It's to live according to that remaining tendency or bias that's in a person towards sin. It's to live in rebellion against the living God. To walk according to the Spirit is to live under the Spirit's control, according to the Spirit's word. It's to live according to the values that God lays out for us in the word. But the person who lives according to the flesh that's another way of saying the unsafe person Romans 8 he doesn't care about any of that stuff he lives how he wants to live so that's why Jesus came into the world now Peter puts it like this we're going to get into the text and the details in just a second Peter says this he himself Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might live for righteousness Then Peter says this, for you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, Peter is talking about salvation as a holistic thing. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's a change of life. And of course, in this life, it's from glory to glory. It's it's a progressive sanctification. So in this first John three context, uh, He's telling us that Jesus died for us to change our lives. Uh, so let's start looking at the passage in its details to see what he says about this. See, Jesus came to deal with sin and sinners in a thorough way. Now, he answers that question for us at the beginning. The question, what is sin? What are you talking about? What is sin? Now, this isn't the only definition of sin in the Bible, but this is a nice terse one. It's not the only one. Look at the beginning of 1 John 3, 4. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
Sin is planning, thinking, being motivated by, walking in a way that's in defiance of God's revealed will. That's what sin is. It's anti-law. That's the word he uses here. Anomia. It's against law. But literally, he says, everyone doing sin is also doing anti-law. That's literal. And that shows us that he's talking about habitual there. Everyone doing sin is also doing anti-law. That's a very wooden way to put it. But that's our world. That's how our world carries on. The world does not care what God thinks. The world is hostile to God's law, to his ways. Here's an easy way to test that. Tomorrow morning, when you go to school, when you go to work, or if you're in a public place, uh, tell them, find a person who that you know is living, <clears throat> maybe they're cohabiting, or they're not a believer, and say, you know you're living in sin because the Bible says, what are they going to say most likely if the Spirit of God's not working in them? What's their reaction going to be? It's going to be hostile, because they're hostile to the law of God. Sin is defined as living against divine law. Sin is anti-law. So he says here, everyone practicing sin is doing anti-law. In other words, verse 4 is the opposite of the person in verse 29 of the previous chapter. Look at, the, look at verse 29, 229. These are opposites. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Can't read anybody else's heart. You can't read anybody else's heart. But he says this. You can be sure of this. If a person habitually practices righteousness, he's born again. Now, you can't take that out of context. You've got to compare it to the rest of the epistle, too, because there are people in this letter that he's mentioning. They're denying that Jesus ever came in the flesh. So you could have the right doctrine. But these are opposites. He's talking here about a habitual way of living. You know, if you're really a believer and you go through one of those periods in life where, well, we use the term backsliding. If you start reading the word of God. Um, in my early 20s, I was just kind of adrift. I believed the right things, but I was adrift. My wife was a nursing student at the time. I was just working a job, and uh, I was adrift. And uh, I remember God prompting me. I know it was him now. I didn't realize it at the time, but prompting me while she was studying one night to just start reading the Bible again, start reading it. And I began to read verses like this. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, or that verse I just read a few minutes ago, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, that, that struck me like a lightning bolt or James too. faith without works is dead. I thought, Lord, I, I am saved. I'm trusting you. But the spirit of God was saying, you sure aren't living it. You live like there's no God. You just live day to day as if there's no God. And that's what it should do for you if you are, quote, unquote, are really a Christian, but you're backslidden. This should convict you. It should make you sit there and say, ah, nuts to you. You closed your ears off. I'm not listening to this. I believe in Jesus. That's good enough for me. I had a guy say that to me one time at a place I used to work at a mill. 
you know, sitting down with him one night after work, both waiting for rides and began to talk to him. I'd gone to high school with him. He was a year behind me and he acted terrible. So I asked him what he believed. And he says, I believe he gave the gospel. I couldn't believe it. But I said, well, I said to him, I said, well, Steve, what about the way you act all the time? That doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with it at all. You're judging me. You always get that. The NIV translation is like this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's exactly why Jesus came into this world, both to deliver us from the penalty of sin and from the practice of sin. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody would like to have that ticket, but that's what a lot of people do. It's like they just sign the card there. I'm in. But nothing's happened inside. So he says here, sin is lawlessness. And as F.F. Bruce says, he says that's a convertible proposition. In other words, no matter which way you say it, it's true. It's like saying 100 cents equals $1. $1 equals 100 cents. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. You can substitute them. So. Sin, then, he says here, is anti-law. It's thinking, planning, viewing things, doing things that are against God's law. You see it in our literature. There's a poem which I'm sure you've heard many times, Invictus, um, by W.E. Henley. That fourth verse is the verse which everybody seems to remember. It goes like this, and it, it, it gives you, it demonstrates this idea of, I'm autonomous. I don't march by anybody else's drum. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Wrong. Uh, Paul Anka. He wrote those lyrics. He wrote a lot of songs, but he wrote that song that Frank Sinatra made famous, My Way. Now, there's a lot of things about that song that are good. You say, look, I'm, if, you, if you're saying, I'm going to live the way I think God wants me to live, that's good. But that's not what that song's about. And, of course, the last line of that song is, I did it my way. It's that rebellious spirit. There's a song Billy Joel wrote. It's called My Life. And the song is about a friend who's moved to the West Coast, and he's living a whole different lifestyle now. And... He's afraid that his friend is going to say to him, hey, you you shouldn't be living like this. And this is what he says. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. And you run into that when you begin to talk to people about the truth of the gospel. There's a fellow named Pharaoh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Neither will I let Israel go. What were you like pre-conversion? What was I like? Well, here it is. Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Sounds like a family reunion. <laughs> or Romans one thirty two describes the, the drift of the Gentile world. Historically, and Paul has just mentioned that whole list of sins there. Anything you can think of, it's in that list. And he says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them. It's like they stand on the sideline and they clap when they see someone else sinning. Like, yes, you're on my team. That's what sin is. It's thinking, planning, viewing things that break God's law. It's flouting God's law. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, on 1 John, he says, Today, he said today in 1964, he says, Today, the truth about sin is concealed by euphemisms. Our sins become mere peccadilloes, temperamental weaknesses. You know, I can't help it if I am mad all the time. That's my personality. I can't help it if I'm uh, uh, sad all the time. That's just the way I am. On and on and on. Personality problems, he says. We call things personality problems. The Bible calls them sin. John declares that sin is not just a negative failure, but essentially it's active rebellion against God's will and a violation of his holy law. Sin is anti-law. And if you're practicing it, then you're showing perhaps that you're not saved. If you, if you can go week after week after week after week and your heart's not touched, like this morning during the prayers, was your heart touched by the prayers of the people? You hear that you, it sounds so genuine. Are you touched by that? Are you thinking, oh, whatever, let's get through this. Let's get on to the next thing. So I can go home and say, hey, I did my job today. I went to church. See, breaking God's law fundamentally is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He said, sin essentially is this. It's a wrong attitude toward God. No one has a right to tell me how to live. Nobody. I live how I want to live. That's what sin is. It's a wrong attitude toward God. It's a heart issue. And these things we're talking about, they come out of the heart, Jesus said. Adulteries, fornications, hatred, murder. They come out of our innermost being, the core of our being. That's because... The carnal mind or the natural mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. He says two really amazing things there. He says that when he says it is not subject to the law of God, the carnal mind, he, it's the word, he, it's not in submission. It's constantly rebelling against God. It's constantly digging its heels in. Oh, there are some things about God's law that we love. There are other things that we don't like at all. And he also says there that the natural mind can't be. So you see, that if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, um, I'm going to live how I want to live, but maybe I ought to change my ways. Maybe I ought to love God's law. You can't. It says right there, it says, the carnal mind, is, it's, not able, it's not able to love God's God. What you need to do is repent and ask God to forgive you of your sins. You need a miracle of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then, and then, you will start loving God's law. In fact, do these passages describe you? If you are here today saying, I am a believer, I, I trust Jesus alone. Well, does this describe you? Is this, the tr- is this trending in your life? I guess that's a better way to put it. Because we're all on different levels of sanctification. How about this one? Psalm 1-2. Does this describe you? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
Law there is the word Torah, which can just mean instruction. The teaching of, the, of God's word, his commands and his law. Does that describe you? How about this? Psalm 119, verses 47 and 48. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Or how about this one? Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, some of them might say, well, that sounds so impractical. How can I meditate on God's law all the day? Well, what it means is you're always mulling it over in your mind. If you're working at a cashier, if you're a cashier, for example, and uh, you say, oh, how can I do that? I've got to pay attention to what I'm doing. That's right. But what you're doing is this. You're constantly applying God's law. Someone comes through your line and I hope no one here is a cashier because you think I picked you out. That's an advantage of not knowing people. Um, someone comes through your line and they say, this is a terrible store. It's so rude. You're rude. If you're mulling God's law over in your mind, what do you do? Do you say, good, leave, go, get out, go to another store? Or do you say, well, I'm sorry, ma'am or sir. Most likely, ma'am. Kidding. Uh, can we be of some help to you? You're constantly teasing out God's word. What, how does it apply? How I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Or Psalm 119, 167. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. Does that sound like you? Is it, are you growing into that? I have to ask myself that. Well, that brings me to the, to the next point. Christ came into this fallen world, this earthly scene, to deliver people out of that kind of living. That's why he came. First John 3, 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this is a word, if I'm talking to someone right now who's here right now, this is a word uh, to you who promote the idea or you live with the outlook that it doesn't matter how I live. Well, he's saying... Christ came for the very purpose to deal with sin. Sin is contrary to the mission and the character of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. The text says here that he was set forth. Jesus was revealed. He was manifested to be the sin evictor. And John says this is common teaching. Do you notice he said that? He says, you know. You know this. He says, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know that's why he came. Even the world knows that. The world expects Christians, I think I said this recently, the world expects Christians to be good. And we're not, and when we're not, they let us know. Why was he manifested? To be the sin evictor. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins in every way. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to deliver sinners. Or this, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew 20.28, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to be the sin evictor in two ways. I've said it many times already today. To deliver us from the penalty of sin. If you're a Christian this morning, you know you will never be condemned. You will never taste the fires of hell. 
You'll never experience that if you're really a Christian. And don't you love these comforting words? I know they can be abused if you look back at 1 John 2, 2. Well, look at the first verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And he's already said earlier in the first chapter that if we deny that we have sin, we're lying. We all sin. As Christians, we sin. But he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, boy, girl. He's the propitiation. So, you know, that you know that if you're a Christian, Christ's sacrifice has satisfied God. You know that he came to deal with that, to take it away. He he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. But he also came to free us from the practice of sin. Yes, thank God. Thank God that we're not going to go to hell if we're Christians. But it's more than that. He came to purify us, even in this world, even in this life. Now, when we talk about living righteously, clearly the basis of that is the cross. But that's not what John's emphasizing here. What he's stressing here is the effect of Christ's death on the cross. And the effect is supposed to be changed life, or I should say a changing life. Listen to Romans 6, 11 through 13. I'll read it out of the NLT. It's kind of a paraphrase, but it's an accurate paraphrase. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. In other words, sin's dominion over you and me has been broken. We don't just live in ongoing sin now. We're constantly repenting, asking. We're running that race of repentance, as Luther put it. He goes on to say, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Jesus alone is qualified to do that because it goes on to say there in him, there is no sin. So wrapping this up, um, Jesus is not only the redeemer. He's also he is our pattern. He committed no sin, Peter said. He's our standard. And sin and sonship are incompatible. So the purpose of his incarnation, according to this verse, verse 5, was to save us from the penalty of sin and from the practice of sin. Um, You know, he didn't come into this world to say, believe in me, I'll pardon you, go ahead and live any way you want now. Your foot's on the base, you can't be tagged out. No. Uh, That's heresy. He came to deal with law-breaking prodigals who had gone off into a far country. So, who then are you? Who are you this morning? Are you a repenter? That's what the Russian Christians refer to. That's how they refer to other Christians, as repenters. Are you a repenter this morning? Are you dealing with sin daily in your life? Trusting in Jesus alone. He alone can save you. But are you saying, are you saying, okay, Lord... I, I, I confess that I know that, 
And I know I'm still a terrible sinner and I still sin. But Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for it. May our born again condition brought about purely by God's grace. May it be as obvious as light shining in a dark place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Probe us. Lord, we pray that you won't let anyone here drift off into destruction uh, simply because they believe the right thing, but it has no place in their life. There's been no repentance. There's been no change of heart. Lord, deliver anyone from that. And for every true believer here today, may you, by your spirit, convince us that I see myself in these things. I see myself as a repenter. I see myself as trusting in the biblical Christ And I see, Lord, that you have made a change in my life and you are changing me. And so give us assurance, Lord, that you will never cast us out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.